Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1. By the way, if your kids are in the service right now, if they're five and under, they can go on back. But even if they're five and under, we'd love for them to stay in the service with us, right? It's so great for your kids to see you worship God and to be able to ask questions after the service so they can head back or they can stay in here with us. Um, And before we get into Philippians, and again, Philippians is about 90% of the way through your Bible, kind of towards the end if you're looking forward, or you can look at the table of contents at at the beginning of most Bibles. Um, But before we get going, I just want to give you guys an update. We had been talking about potentially going to El Salvador on our first, really our first mission since COVID, right? And so um, if you remember, like really quickly, I want to tell the story again, because it's, it's so, it's so awesome. I was praying and really like, God, would you open the door to the next international missions partnership for us? Because we've always been a church that went on missions, but the last three years, we just really haven't, two, two, three years. And I was praying about that. And I was like, you know, and I, as I was praying, I thought, God, you know what? I'm going to ask Brandon or Kevin tomorrow at my pastor's meeting. I have a group of pastors I meet with. And I, and I was like, I'll ask one of them if they've got anything going on. And I went the next day, we were having our lunch together. And one of the other pastors was talking about the mission trip. They went to Africa. And Brandon, one of the guys I was going to ask, turns to me while he's talking. He's like, hey, remind me. Um, we're getting ready to take a, a, a vision trip to El Salvador. And we were wondering if you guys might want to come with us. Let's talk about afterwards. And so I was like, and I looked at him and he looked, I was looking at him like he was crazy. And he's like, what? I'm like, nothing. We'll talk after. And so the guy I was going to ask about missions and we've known each other for five years now and I've never asked him before. And he asked me, Hey, do you want to come with us? And so, um, we'd start talking about what maybe we'd partner with Jeff and Jefferson Avenue Baptist church to go to El Salvador to take the gospel there. And to really what our goal in the long term is to plant churches there. There's some churches there, Baptist churches that, that want to plant more churches up in the places, um, where people don't worship Jesus at all or where like kind of old school Catholic mixed with local culture and tradition has, has turned into this like works-based faith that really has nothing to do with Jesus. But, but people who they found out are very open to the truth of who Jesus is and they want us to partner in planting churches in those areas. And so now officially, for sure, Ethan and I will be going um, to El Salvador August 11th on a vision trip. And I'm just really, really excited about that. It's not for sure that this will be our long-term partnership. We go on this first trip so we can pray with the local people. We can pray before we go. We can pray when we get there. Most of the time when we do this, we end up partnering there. But there's been a couple times we haven't, right? So we're going to go. Um, it's, it's feeling like this is where we're going to end up, um, particularly because after I, uh, I think I said this, after I announced this might be a potential partnership um, a few weeks ago, I think I had six people immediately come up to me and be like, hey, if we go next year, I want to go. So that was a pretty good indication that our, our, our heart as a church was behind it. Um, and we've got some Spanish speakers in our church too. So that's really, really valuable if we go. But that, just be praying for that. Pray with us that that trip would, um, God would just move and just make very clear and he'd give us wisdom on the direction that we need to go moving forward in El Salvador. And so thank you for your prayers, church. I know a lot of you have been praying for this to happen for a while and we're off again. And I couldn't be more excited. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Um, all right, I think I'm okay. I can't inhale water and talk at the same time. Okay. So let me, let me jump in with this before we, we jump into Philippians 1. If, if you've been coming to Freshwater for a while, you've at least probably heard parts of this story. But when I was a teenager, I had a friend who was a just staunch atheist. And in high school, he was, that, he was the kind of atheist that just kind of gave everybody a hard time for believing. <clears throat> and as he moved through college, it got more and more staunch, more and more belligerent, more and more belittling. To the point, like, I would say it was absolutely active persecution against people, people of the faith. Um, and, it, and it just kept getting stronger. And listen, we were friends. 
But he, he even gave me a, a hard time about my faith. And the difficult thing about this guy is, if you remember any part of the story, is he was basically a genius. And when I say that, like literally a genius. Like he was so brilliant. He was so smart. It reminds me of the guy in Goodwill Hunting. He was like that, right? He came from a terrible background and just was so smart. He caught up and surpassed everyone with his intelligence. And so to have an argument or a debate with him felt imp- always felt impossible. Like he is way smarter than me. He knows way more than me. And that started when we were in high school. It just got way worse as we moved into college, right? And so um, he, would, he had a, really, a real knack for making you feel stupid, right? He had a real knack for making you feel stupid. But also, um, this absolutely brilliant guy somehow also um, showed me a lot of respect. And those two things don't seem to go together, do they? You know how high school guys in particular can like, almost like, well, actually get in a fist fight and then like a day later, they're totally cool. It was kind of like that, right? He would just belittle me about my faith. But then also like if we were at a party and I'm not, I'm not condoning this for younger people, but when I was in high school, I didn't drink, but I, I would go to parties with my friends. He would be the first one if somebody offered me a beer or a drink or, or, or to smoke something I shouldn't smoke. He'd be like, no, 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 he doesn't do that. Like I never even had around him. I never even had to say I don't drink. He'd always be the first one to step in for me. So it's like this weird this weird dichotomy, right? That he'd make fun of me, but also he'd kind of like be in my corner about it. This, this strange thing. And so as we moved into college, again, it, it, it got worse, not better. He got, he started studying more. It didn't get better. And, um, and it, it created a distance between us, as you might guess, as it got worse. Um, and so after college, we still kept in touch, but you know, those friends after high school or college, you kind of keep in touch with every few years. That's what our relationship was. And I heard over the years from other people, not from him, because we just kind of catch up when he called, is that he basically became like an atheist apologist. So if you don't know what an apologist is in our Christian faith, it's someone who defends the faith, who's really, really knowledgeable and actively gets in debates with other people about logically why we believe, right? And he became that from an atheist perspective. I knew people that like walked away from their faith or were thinking about becoming Christians that he convinced not to be Christians. He was an evangelism, evangelist for atheism. And so about... 15 years after we graduated high school, he calls me and he starts like kind of pushing on me, but asking questions about Christ. And when he called, I'm like, okay, here we go again. But at this point I was way more, way more equipped than I used to be. But, but right away it became obvious. I am not equipped for this guy because he had studied these things. He had read so many books and he retains everything. (laughs) He retains everything. It's crazy. And so, but here's the thing. I, I felt like he could overwhelm me in the conversation at any point he wanted to but he didn't. And he's asking me questions about my faith and why I believe this. And he's like, like this, he would say things like, this is ridiculous. Why do you believe that? And then we talk through it and he didn't belittle me and, and he didn't make me feel stupid. And we really started talking through who Jesus is to me and why he doesn't believe, but it was a good conversation. And then finally, I just asked him, I was like, man, why are we doing this? Why, why do you keep asking me about these things? Why do you keep calling me and having these discussions? Because this went on for a couple weeks. And he said something, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was really close to this. He said something like this. It's like, JT, I, I've read a lot of books and I've had a lot of these discussions and I've studied a lot. And I know you keep saying that I'm intelligent and I'm smarter than you, so it's difficult and all of those things. But, but here's, here's just the simple truth. With all my intelligence and all my learning, I know one thing. I have not found what you have. And I haven't, I haven't been able to study enough to find it. So I wanted to talk to you about it. This guy who had persecuted me and, and my friends and 
I haven't been able to find it. Not long after that, about a couple months after that, my buddy who has been a lifelong atheist gave his life to Jesus Christ. Because that's what God does. That's who our God is. And so today we're going to be at the end of chapter 1 in our series on the book of Philippians. If you're new to Freshwater, that's what we do. We walk through books of the Bible. Because as I, I say over and over, but I want you to remember this, in the long run, who cares what I have to say? My words are going to be forgotten. Most of them are going to be forgotten by Thursday. But the word of God's going to stand forever. And so we're walking through the book of Philippians and we're coming right into the end of chapter 1. And as we finish this chapter, Paul, who through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this letter to the church in Philippi, the city of Philippi, which is a Roman colony in the area of Greece. As we come to the end of this chapter, I think, I think Paul's really trying to make a point to this church. And it's this, your suffering in Christ is not pointless. Your suffering in Christ is not pointless. In fact, your suffering, this is going to be a hard thing for some of us, your suffering has been ordained by God for a purpose. Just like my buddy who for years and years persecuted me, but really more so persecuted a lot of other Christians and eventually came to know Jesus because of the few Christians that actually shared the truth and were consistent with their faith. Their suffering, my suffering was for a reason. And today he's going to show the Christians in Philippi, their suffering is for a a reason. So particularly if you haven't been with us, here's what we're going to do today. God has shown us through, throughout chapter 1 some really important things to understanding the end of chapter 1 today for, for where Paul is going at the end, of the end of the chapter in our text. So although our passage is really chapter 1, 27 through 30, and we're really focusing on verses 29 through 30, we're going to read the whole chapter. We're going to go back in verse 1, and we're going to read through the whole thing. And, and as we go through the chapter today, I want you to pay attention to a couple of things specifically. One, I want, you to, I want you to see all the ways that Paul has suffered. I want you to pay attention to him. As I'm reading through it, stay with me. Don't get lost. We're going to be reading from the ESV version of the Bible. But if you don't have that, just stay, stay with me as, as close as you can, right? I want you to see all the ways that, that Paul has suffered and pay close attention to those things and, and how God has used all of that suffering for good. And then two, I want you to see Paul's reaction to all that suffering for Christ's sake. Because who... For someone who suffered in ways that most of us just couldn't even imagine, Paul can't stop talking about his joy in Jesus Christ. So with that, in Philippians 1, let's start in verse 1. And we're going to read straight through and pay attention to those couple things. His suffering, God's purpose in the suffering, and Paul's joy. Philippians 1.1 says this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at, who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ, of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, or that can be translated brothers and sisters, 
that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For, me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And this is our main passage for today. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. All right, church, so what do we see in that chapter? That although Paul is imprisoned completely unjustly, Paul is imprisoned simply for doing exactly what God asked him to do, and although through all that process he has suffered greatly, and although there are people specifically preaching the gospel to hurt him, although at any moment he could be put to death by the most powerful empire in the world, the empire of Rome, what does Paul do? He rejoices. And we talked about that word, joy. He is happy. He is re rejoicing. He rejoices in his brothers and sisters in Christ. He rejoices in their faith and their partnership and their defense of the gospel. He rejoices in how God has used his suffering to advance the gospel in impossible places like the imperial guard in Rome and uh, we see in Philippians 4 into Caesar's own household. He rejoices in the unshakable hope he has in Christ because Paul knows something that I wish all of us knew more deeply, that whether he lives or whether he dies, he will be delivered by Christ because Christ has already given him victory now and for eternity. That is done and nothing can change that. And that's what Paul stands on. And that's enough for him. And so that's what Paul's been talking about. But in verse 27, Paul makes a turn. The chapter has been about Paul's prayers for this church and then updating the church on what he's been through and how God has used everything he's been, been through to advance his gospel. But in verse 27, he turns his attention to the actual church in Philippi, to his, his brothers and sisters in Christ there. Because you know what? Paul knows that they've been suffering for their faith too. So Paul writes these words to encourage them, to strengthen them, to give them hope in, the, in their suffering, and maybe most importantly, to leave them an example an example that Christ 
left Paul. And we're going to look, look at that in Philippians 2, right? But the example, Paul's really just pointing to Jesus Christ. Like Christ went through these things, I am now going through similar things. And Christ in me is enough. So he wants to give them encouragement and inspiration that Jesus Christ is enough for them as they go through these difficult things. So here's what I want to do. I want, I want to reread 27 through 30 again. So that we might begin to grasp what, what Paul is trying to teach the people of the Philippian church and through them what God might be trying to teach us. So look at Philippians 1, 20 th- 27 through 30 again. It says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. That he had, and that now he still has. So Paul's last words in, the cha- in chapter one, he tells them, to live lives worthy of the gospel. Or in the end, he kind of says this too. That just means live lives worthy of Jesus Christ. Because in scripture, really, the gospel and Jesus are interchangeable words. And as Jesus taught us so well last week, thank you, TJ, for being so faithful to the word last week. As TJ taught us last week, that, listen, when we say, it says live lives worthy of the gospel, that doesn't mean that you live a life that is perfect. Right? God knows that we can't be perfect. It doesn't mean that, that we have to work, start working really, really hard to get all our stuff together and just be better. How many of us have grown up with a faith, at least at times, that we, that's what we felt like our faith was? Like, listen, just be better. Why aren't you better? No, Jesus Christ came because we try really hard to be better and we don't manage to be better on our own. Jesus Christ came to set us free. You know, living lives worthy of the gospel in Christ, Paul tells us what that means. Stand firm together for the sake of your faith. Stand firm together in one spirit. That means the Holy Spirit. Not by your strength, not by your will, by the Holy Spirit that's within you. You guys stand firm together. And together you learn to worship God. Because if you worship God, if you make the glory of God the centerpiece of your life, God's going to give you everything that you need, all the strength that you need. He is the one that's going to create the fruit of righteousness in you. Yes, church, we strive for holiness. Yes, we take that seriously. Yes, we walk away from our sin and we put it to death. But we do it in the strength of the Holy Spirit and the unity of the church. It is by the brotherhood and sisterhood of the church through the Holy Spirit, by the one who is the head of our church, that we find the strength to grow and also not just grow, but stand firm when suffering comes. This is what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. How many of us would think when someone says, hey, man, live a life worthy of the gospel, would, would not automatically think that's telling me I need to be better? Of course we need to be better. Jesus Christ wants us to be better. He wants us to be more holy. But this is how this happens. This is what this means. Stand firm together by the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's another way you could say this phrase, live lives worthy of the gospel. In the Greek, this was originally written in the Greek language, the, the words that are used here carry like a, a kind of another, a deeper meaning. This phrase in the Greek could also be translated, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. That's kind of important to us on Independence Day, right? Realizing where our real citizenship is. But it would have been important to the people in Philippi. It would have carried a context for them that it doesn't carry for us. Do you know what that is? If you remember, the city of Philippi is a Roman colony. 
in, in Philippi is in the area of Greece. Now, that's normal. Rome's taken over, you know, all of this part of Europe, Europe and a huge part of Asia, and they have this huge empire. So it's, it's normal for them to be a Roman colony under Roman rule. But this city in particular was a city where ex-military officers and, and ex-military people were given land. And so they moved here in droves. So diplomats followed them, politicians, aristocrats followed them in. So this is a very Roman city. I mean, the pride of Rome and Roman nationalism, Roman imperialism is alive and well in the city of Philippi. And so for a lot of people in this city, if, if you are not like completely loyal to the emperor who many of them worship as a god, that is seen as treason. They took their loyalty to Rome very seriously. In fact, in Acts 16, and we're going to look at this again in a minute, but in Acts 16, Paul and Silas were basically beaten and thrown in jail for not being Roman enough, for not, not following Roman customs. So partially, I think what Paul is, is reminding them of when he says live lives worthy of the gospel is to remind these people who are Philippian people, right? We think of them as Christians. They're, they weren't Christians first. They were Philippian people of, of just like we, so many of us think of us, ourselves as Americans first. We're not. They, and he's telling them, you're not Philippians first. You're not, you're not citizens of the Roman empire first. All the Roman traditions, you're not that first. You are citizens of the kingdom of God. That's how you remember to live lives worthy of the gospel. Remember where your citizenship is, and your citizenship is in heaven, which is the exact words Paul uses in Philippians 3.20. Paul knows that for sure the, city is gonna, the people of the city are going to oppose them and persecute them and belittle them and maybe even beat them and arrest them for their faith in Christ. That's the risk that they're under. But he also knows that together by the power of the Holy Spirit, they can stand firm in Christ. And not only stand firm, but grow and rejoice in the goodness of God. Now in verse 28, Paul uses this kind of, kind of weird cryptic phrase. And he basically says, hey, don't be frightened by your opponents, not in anything. Because you standing firm in your faith, in one spirit, when persecution comes, you stand firm in that. Listen, that's a sign of their destruction and your salvation. Right? Standing firm is a sign of their destruction. That seems kind of weird at first. And TJ did a good job of kind of making that clear to us what that means. Like that when they stand firm together, even when persecution comes, they're standing firm and they're still faithful to Christ. That's a reminder of their salvation and their strength in Jesus Christ, the strength that comes through their salvation, but also kind of this hope that it's going to point other people to their destruction. They're going to see there's something different about these people, maybe see the maybe hear and see the truth of the gospel and realize that if I don't know Jesus Christ as my Savior, that's going to lead to my destruction. That's going to lead to my end. Maybe learning in the end that's going to be, the result of that's going to be forever separated from God in hell. Because if Jesus doesn't pay for my sin, I'm in big trouble. I'm in big trouble. But I also think the rest of our passage today, which is our main focus in 29 through 30, helps us give, a, give us a little deeper understanding of this concept. So let's read verse 29 through 30 one more time. Because this, this first verse is kind of a, a tough verse to swallow, especially when you first read it. So Philippians 1 verse 29 says this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So Paul, we say Paul, it's all through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? So really from God, but Paul writes, God used men to write Scripture. In verse 29, Paul says this almost mind-bending thing, especially if you, don't take, if you take a little time to read it and, and think about it and not just kind of skip over it like we do so often in verses that we don't like or don't understand. 
He says that it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but suffer. Granted, it's been granted to you to suffer for Christ's sake. You know that that phrase, it has been granted to you, in the Greek could also be translated, it has been freely given to you. It's been freely given to you. Or it's been freely given to you. It's been given to you. Sorry, it has been graciously and freely given to you. It has been graciously and freely given to you. Now, I think it's pretty clear, at least to most of us, particularly if you've been coming to Freshwater for a while, right? And if you haven't been, like, let, let me just make it clear for you. Um, we are saved by grace. Period. For Ephesians 2, for you have been saved by grace, not your good works, not getting your stuff together, not finally going down the right path. You've been saved by grace. Ephesians 2, remember, always remember, said that we are dead in our trespasses. The dead don't do anything for themselves. It was God that saw us in our dead state and breathed life into us and awakened us. So yes, you must believe in faith. Yes and amen to that. But that is simply just accepting a gift freely given to us. We didn't work for that. We didn't do that. God saved us. God granted to us freely and graciously salvation. We believed in faith, and so in that we are saved. Amen? Amen. I think most of us are on board with that. And praise God for that, that it's not about my good works that are going to save me and, and keep me righteous, but it's about Jesus Christ and his work that saved me and keeps me righteous. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. But how many of us want to put that truth on a coffee mug? We'll put, we'll put what Paul said just a few verses ago on a coffee mug, won't we? To live is Christ and to die is gain. Although in context, that's a super daunting thing, but it sounds really good on a, on a coffee mug, right? Or on a t-shirt. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Yes and amen, that's absolutely true. But how many of us want to put on a coffee mug, God has granted to you suffering? You ready to put that on a t-shirt and walk around with it? It has been granted to you to suffer. That's hard, right? But if God loves us, and listen, all we have to do is look at what Jesus Christ was willing to do and what God was willing to sacrifice. Can you imagine what the pain that God the Father went through, but what Jesus was willing to sacrifice so that we could be saved? No doubt that God loves us. So if God does love us, and he does, how could the fact that God ordained our suffering for Christ's sake be a good thing? How could ordained suffering Suffering given graciously be a good thing. Well, well, church, stay with me for a second. I think we can get to that answer, right? It's going to feel like I'm going off on a tangent, but I'm not, because I want you to remember something. Do you remember why Rome created the cross? It was a symbol. They created this thing where they could shame people as much as possible as they hung them up on that cross naked, so people would they parade people by them so they could look at them. Look what happens when you defy Rome. To shame them, and they, they used it to destroy them, right? To hang them up there until their death, just to absolutely destroy them so that anyone who wanted to oppose Rome would see this shame and would see their de de destruction and they would think twice. And by the way, for a very long time, that was a very effective tool in the hands of the Roman Empire. Now, on the flip side of that, I want you to think about who our God is and why Jesus came. Jesus came so that he might take away our shame. 
Jesus came so that the destruction that was waiting for us in eternity might be averted by him bearing all of our shame, all of our guilt on that cross so that at eternity we would not be destroyed, but we would be saved. I want you to think about what God did. He took the greatest symbol of that time, maybe of all time, of shame and destruction, and he turned it into a, the greatest symbol for us throughout all of time of how God takes away our shame, how he saves us from our destruction, how he gives us victory now and forevermore, because that's what God does. Jesus saved us through suffering, through the greatest suffering imaginable, because sometimes that's how God works, through suffering. God does amazing things. Through suffering, God rescues us, he saves us, and that's what he did with the cross. The greatest symbol of shame and destruction turned into victory and redemption for God's people. How amazing is that? Do you think that's a coincidence? Cross cross still means to us so much even today. Church, in the same way, the Philippian church will have people oppose them for their faith as they opposed Jesus Christ. Jews will lie to them. Romans will hate them. And at times, they will have more than just a threat of people wanting to do violence for them. They're going to have a very real threat at times that they are going to be put to death for their faith. But I think what Paul's trying to communicate, if if God could take the most terrifying symbol of shame and destruction that had ever existed in their time and turn it into a symbol of love and hope and redemption and salvation and victory, then what do they really have to fear? What can really be done to them that they can't stand on Christ and say, Christ is enough one way or another in life or in death. I am delivered and I'm going to stand on that hope no matter what, no matter what Rome says, no matter what my neighbor says, no, no matter what they threaten me with. Listen, church, that's easy to say. It's a whole other thing if you're in the midst of that and have to, have to try to live on that. But this is what Paul is trying to do, telling them to stand firm. Stand, not, not in yourself. Stand firm in the power of the Holy Spirit. Stand firm together, holding each other up, building each other up, being strong together, and reminding them that their hope is not in this world or in their citizenship in the most powerful empire in the world, but in the one who turns our suffering and destruction into victory whether that's in this life or the next. And then in verse 29, he also says, suffering is not only granted to us, but it's for the sake of Christ. Church, our suffering makes us more like Christ, who suffered for us. And as we suffer for his sake, he transforms us to be more like him so that we might more fully know him. This is why Romans 5 is one of my favorite passages, right? Romans 5, I I quote this one a lot, but it's meant so much to me. And right now we're talking about suffering. This one's one's relevant to it. Romans 5, you can look it up later, but Romans 5 basically says, Paul says, rejoice in your suffering. You know why? Because rejoicing and trusting in Christ teaches us to endure. We, we learn to endure in Christ, not endure on your own, you endure in Christ. And as you learn to endure, as you learn to turn to Christ in your suffering, as you endure in Christ, that will build the character of Christ in you. Like endurance produces character. And that character of Christ, as the character of Christ grows in you, you'll, know, you'll get to know the Father more because Jesus Christ knew the Father perfectly, right? And as you get to know the Father more and who God is, that will lead to your hope. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And that hope will not be put to shame which is what Paul is telling them in, in, in Philippians, that hope will not be put to shame because the love of God has been poured into your hearts through Christ Jesus. 
Suffering in the end leads to hope. And I know that at times suffering can feel like hopelessness. I know in the midst of suffering, how often can we clearly see what God's doing in the midst of your suffering? That's why we stand firm together because we almost can never see what God's doing in the midst of our suffering. It feels like, why would this be happening? How could this be happening? Listen, I said this to someone the other day. Suffering makes us so selfish, doesn't it? Hear me, I'm not even giving you a hard time about this. Like, this is not condemnation. When you're suffering, it's hard not to think about yourself and what you're going through all the time. You need your brothers and sisters in Christ around you to stop focusing on you, to turn your eyes to Jesus Christ, and even how you can think of and love and serve other people. Because there's nothing worse than being so focused on yourself. That's what suffering, and by the way, it's also what sin does. Sin and suffering make you focused on you. And so Romans 5 is really talking about suffering in general. Philippians 1 is... It, 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 it's relevant to suffering in general, but this is really talking about suffering for the sake of Christ's name. Because that's what the church in Philippi is going through. They're going to have people who are going to persecute them and belittle them and look down on them and exclude them and cast them out for Christ's name. Yet Jesus, yet Paul is telling them, don't lose hope because we know where our faith is from. But he's not just telling them that. I think what he's trying to tell them is it's not just about you, though. Yes, you'll be transformed to be more like Jesus who suffered for you. And as you suffer, you'll learn more about what it is to be him. That your suffering in Christ's name, for Christ's name, as you stand firm, will be a testimony to a watching world. It'll be a testimony. The way you suffer will be a testimony to those who don't believe. And the reality is, for some, that testimony is not going to mean anything at all. In fact, it might be just another reason to mock even more, particularly in the Roman Empire where pride meant everything, honor meant everything. And suffering well for Christ is really about humbling yourself, right? Not pride, it's humility. So some aren't gonna care at all, but for some, like my buddy, the atheist, for some, they're not gonna be able to help but take notice. They're not gonna be able to help to see that you suffer differently, that you have people around you that act differently that the harder they push on you about your faith in Christ, the more firm you get. And our firmness is not anger or staunchness. Our firmness is grace and mercy and kindness and love and truth. And truth. They're going to take notice and they see something different. And I think this points us back to what we were talking about at the beginning. As we, when we suffer for Christ, when we endure in Christ, when the character of Christ is built into us, when our hope actually grows in the midst of our suffering for Christ it's going to remind us of our salvation, of how good God is. How can we have joy in our suffering? Because of Jesus. And it reminds us how good our God is, that his joy is in us no matter what. But at times that'll also be to assign to other people who just can't understand it, that they can't reconcile in their mind how, how this community and how this person is living like this. And so it'll be a sign of their destruction. They're going to see, they're going to see and, and, and hear about Jesus and not be able to understand it. And you're going to share the gospel with them. And they're going to hear that, listen, if you don't believe, you're going to be destroyed. You're going to end up in hell. But listen, if you believe, Jesus will wipe it all away. It's a sign of their destruction and of our salvation. What a beautiful thing that God has done for us that even in our suffering, God is at work to do more amazing things than we can even think or believe. And then lastly, really quickly, in verse 29, Paul talks about this conflict, conflict that I see that you have, that I had, that I still have. So what's this conflict and this opposition that he's talking about? Well, one is the Romans, like we've just been talking about, right? 
In Acts 16, Paul, what actually happened is Paul um, cast out a demon out of a slave girl who apparently could see the future, right? She had divination. And her owners would use her to make money. And so Paul cast the demon out of this slave girl. And the owners freak out. So they take Paul and Silas before the magistrates, before the leaders in the city. And, and here's what they said. Let me see if I can find it, right? I've just been going off. But here's, what it, here's what they said. These men are Jews and they advocate customs that are not Roman. These are Romans saying, you're not Roman. And they've been th- doing things that aren't Roman. And they beat them and they threw them in jail. This is the kind of opposition that the Philippian church is under. But to be honest, I don't think it's the main. I don't think it's the main opposition. All throughout the New Testament and in the Philippian church too, I think the main opposition is the Jewish people. Two sects of Jewish people in particular. Like there was a lot of different sects, but two main groups. One are Jews just like the Jew that Paul was. I mean, Paul's still a Jew, right? But do you remember who Paul was before Jesus Christ saved him? He persecuted the church. He approved of the killing of Christians. This is who Paul was. This is who God saved. You think you're not good enough for Jesus Christ? Paul was literally approving of the killing of Christians and dragging families out of their homes and arresting them as a family. This is who God saved and used to take the gospel through the, throughout the, the unknown world at the time, throughout the Gentile world. So there's Jews like that that are persecuting and trying to kill Christians. And this is what Paul is talking about, that the opposition that I had and still have. It's still the Jews. It's the Jews. The Jews are really responsible for Paul being arrested and now the Rome, Rome trying to kill him. Just like with Jesus. Remember with Jesus, Pontius Pilate didn't really want to kill Jesus, but the Jews were crying for it. It's the same thing that happened with Paul. So that's one group. Like people literally trying to kill, trying to kill them and stop them from spreading their faith. And then you have another sect. It's the Jewish Christians. Now there's a lot of great Jewish Christians like Paul. Right? Paul's a Jew, but he's also a Christian now, Right? But then you have a sect of Jewish Christians that are going around to all the New Testament churches and basically saying, yeah, 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 Jesus is great. But if you don't get circumcised, which is a symbol of Judaism, then you're not really saved. You don't, you don't really know him. If, if you're not following all our customs, then you're not really saved. If you're, if you're not doing all of these things and believing all of these things, you're not really saved. It was Jesus plus something. Right? Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus all of these rules. Jesus plus the Mosaic law. Jesus plus all of these customs. And so it was the Jews who tried to fight to kill the Christians and the Jewish, Jewish Christians who were trying to tell them they needed to do all these things. So that was the real threat against them, the Jewish Christians, the Jews, and the Romans. That's the conflict that they're still having, and Paul's still having up in Rome. Now, that's kind of the story that's going on in the Church of Philippi. Before we wrap this thing up, I want to, I want to say something. I think often, not for all of us, but for some of us, when we read something like this in the Bible— we have to be a little bit careful, right? Because I think often sometimes we have a tendency to kind of shoot through this thing and, and kind of automatically make the text about us, like automatically think this is speaking directly to us and how it applies to us. And, and in a way, that's fine. We're going to talk about that in a second. But in a way, if we do that, oftentimes we're going to miss the point that God's trying to make. This passage is not really about you, right? This passage is about Paul and his deep concern for their very real suffering, for the very real threat they're under, and how they can consistently remind each other of the goodness of Christ, of their salvation, and that they can stand firm in one spirit together and not only endure, but rejoice in how good God is. That's what the passage is about. That's what we need to take away because that is inspiring because we're not under that same kind of persecution, right? I think it's inspiring to us because we can look at that like, yes, I'm suffering, 
But if God is faithful in that situation to Paul and the church in Philippi and the rest of the churches in the New Testament who are under heavy persecution, listen, like hopefully that'll encourage your faith and be like, I'm going to be okay because God is good. God is better, right? So we focus on what this is saying about them and that'll inspire us even more if we really understand it. Now, all that being said, that doesn't mean that there aren't things that we can learn and apply to our own lives in our context once we understand why it was written and who it was written to. And, and look at that first and foremost. For example, listen, we're not at risk of Jews, like at that time, 2,000 years ago, trying to kill us, right? And persecute us. Now, you can go other places in the, in, in the world, and we even like, support missionaries that are literally at risk of Muslims coming in and trying to kill them, right? Now, not all Muslims try to do that, but we all know there's sects of that that try to literally kill Christians and persecute them as heavily as they possibly can. So that's a very real thing in our, in our world, but we don't have to pretend like it's a very real thing for us. It's not, right? So we're not under that kind of threat. And we don't really have Jewish Christians, for the most part, as far as I know, going around like persecuting people and saying to Christians, hey, listen, you have to get circumcised to actually believe. You have to follow the Mosaic law. You have to do this custom. You have to do this meal. You have to do this thing. We don't see a lot of that, right? So it's not really the same. On the other hand, don't we have people and teachers out there telling them that they need Jesus plus something else to really be saved? Jesus plus. Anytime you hear Jesus plus, get really, really wary of this teacher. We have teachers out there telling us, yeah, listen, you need Jesus, yes, but you need Jesus plus good works. That, that you need Jesus plus this, this spiritual experience. You might be saved, but you really need this spiritual experience to like, like, like really be saved, to really be a Christian. We need Jesus plus this special, you need Jesus plus this special knowledge. If you had this special knowledge, then, then you'd really know Christ and you'd really be a Christian. Right now we have, listen, mega churches. Listen, not all mega churches are bad, right? But there are mega churches out there filled with people being taught that suffering in this life is not really the will of God. That suffering in this life is against the will of God. That if we simply believed enough, and if we had enough faith, if we mustered up enough faith that we would be healed, and our suffering would go away. Now, not only is that just blatantly unbiblical, did you just read the passage that we were in that it's been graciously given to us, it's been granted to us to suffer? So not only unbiblical, but it's causing so much suffering. Listen, sometimes I don't think we think of that as persecution. It absolutely is. This is what the Roman church is going through. This is the kind of persecution they're dealing with. People are leaving the church. They're misunderstanding. They're being harmed because people are teaching them things opposite of the gospel, and they don't know what to do with it. People are being told right now, if you just believed enough, you'd be healed or that your suffering would go away. I, you, you think two weeks ago, I had a conversation with a guy talking about his sister in this area that had something that she needed healed. And she told, she was told, you will be healed. And then when she wasn't healed, do you know what he told her? Well, I guess you don't have enough faith. Now, can you imagine the damage that does to someone who's actually faithful, who does love Jesus, who wants to be healed, who believes that Jesus Christ can heal? Because you know what? Jesus Christ can heal. Jesus Christ can take away our suffering, but sometimes that suffering is ordained. God needs us in that suffering because we need to learn, or maybe it's not even about us. Maybe he's going to use it for testimony for other people. Do you think the people in the Philippian church knew that 2,000 years later, we'd be talking about their faith and their suffering would encourage us? No. In their suffering, they needed the words of, the, of their pastor, Paul, to tell them Jesus loves you because they couldn't see it because they were hurting. But there's teachers out there saying, if you just had more faith, then you'd be okay. 
Can you imagine how that destroys people's faith? The doubt and the judgment and the pain that comes with that. Listen, that is, that is a form of persecution. Don't believe it's not. Also, similarly, we're not under Roman persecution. We're not worried about being killed because we don't follow Roman ideals. But let's not pretend that we don't have people absolutely committed to their version of the American way. Happy Independence Day, right? This just happened to fall together. I didn't plan this. But just absolutely committed that their American way is the right way, that their side of the aisle in politics is the right side of the aisle, that, that, they, that their version of what American culture and society is absolutely what this should look like. Don't we have our own American nationalists? Don't we have our own Christian nationalists? That it's Christ and maybe America, maybe America, right? Listen, Christ and you can't even see your citizenship to, a, to, to being an American next to Christ. Do you understand that? It's not even in the same view, but we have people standing so strongly on what it means to be an American. Listen, I have no problem with, with supporting and loving your country. That's not what I'm saying. But we, don't we have all kinds of people, even Christian people, casting out all kinds of hate and fear and vitriol and literally trying, I hate this word, but it fits, trying to cancel people's lives. Listen, you say one wrong thing that people disagree with, and they're going to do everything they can to destroy your life. Now, most of us aren't going to have to deal with that now because we're not famous enough. We're not important enough for that. But is that not where our culture has been going for a long time? If you don't believe what I do, you are done. And by the way, let me help destroy you. Maybe not physically, maybe not put us to death, but real persecution for the things that we believe in and the way of life. Now, again, I don't even want us to pretend like our persecution is the same as it was in the Philippian church. I think it's a disservice to what they went through. Like, it's just a lie. Like, we have, I think there's even teachers out there. There's so many great teachers in our city. Don't you ever hear me knocking the church as a whole and knocking. We have amazing teachers and amazing churches in our city. Praise God. But there are teachers trying to stir up their, their people, maybe watching way, way, way too much Fox News or CNN, right? Trying to stir up their people that we are under attack. Listen, church, come on. That is a joke compared to what they're, that's why we need to see what the Philippian church was going through in their context so we can really appreciate what suffering for your sake, for the sake of Jesus Christ is truly, so we can stand firm in anything that comes. Now, on the other hand, that doesn't mean there's not persecution for Christians right now in our country, right? As I, I think I've shared this before, but listen, we had a member of our church that forced, felt forced to leave their job because they were going to have to sign a document that affirmed things that were anti-biblical, anti-gospel. Like literally, you have to sign this and agree with this thing but it was opposite of what the Bible says about who we are. And they could have just signed it and then hope nobody ever brought it up and nobody ever said anything and they were never challenged on it. But they kept looking at this document. If I am who I say I am, if I believe what I say I do, can I really sign this thing? And here's the sad thing. And listen, I even get this. I think most of us would have signed it and just kind of moved on and tried to forget about it. But this person on this day couldn't. And they left their job. That, by the way, that they loved, that they, they wanted, they had friends there. Do you, do you think that's not a form of persecution? It's not the same, but it kind of is the same, right? Like these things are gonna to happen to us more and more as we move forward, right? As I, 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 let's just, 
I don't want to, I don't, we, we are not going to live in fear. We live in confidence because no matter what happens, Jesus is Lord and we're citizens of the kingdom of God. We don't live in fear. We rejoice. But TJ and I were having this conversation this week. If spring, some people on Springfield Board of Education, which I don't know any of them personally, I'm not talking about anyone in particular. Don't think I am. I'm not being political. But if they heard some of the things that we teach from the Bible, might ask us to leave this school. You're not welcome here anymore because you preached this truth, because you preached this, this, there's just one truth, truth of gender. We preached that one truth. We could be asked to leave the school. That's it, right? So I'm not saying we're under heavy persecution right now. And Christian, don't walk around like we are all the time and act like we're, 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 we're these people that are constantly oppressed. We're not. But every day, every, every year, more and more of it is coming, isn't it? And we have examples in our church right now. I could give you five more of people having to make decisions for Christ. And that decision is going to lead to suffering. And by the way, that might not be an accident. I'm not going to speak for God on your particular situation, but I know often it is, I can tell you this for sure, it is the will of God that at times we will suffer for the sake of Christ because we need the suffering to become more like Christ. And that suffering, do you know what it leads to? Hope and an understanding of God's love for us. And is there any more, anything more important than that? Because that hope leads us to glorify God, and that's why we exist, to glorify God and make much of him. So in the moment, we're not going to always, always understand our suffering. I get that. Just like I said, the Philippian church, they, I guarantee they didn't understand what God was going to do through their suffering. But here's what we know for sure. Christ has a purpose in our suffering, and we might not always see it. We might not always understand it. We definitely might not always be able to explain it, but God is always at work when we suffer for his sake, and we make, and we make the hard decision for the glory of his name, always, because he's promising it. So listen, on the days that you doubt that, on the days that you're just struggling with that truth, on the days when it's just hard to wrap your mind around the fact that you might suffer, or listen, on the day that, that is going to come for many of us, when we're going to have to make a decision for Christ. And it's going to be easy just to kind of walk around it or be a little bit deceptive and say the wrong th- say the thing that's easier or do the wrong thing or do the thing that would be easier instead of standing firm for Christ. I want you to look to the cross. I want you to remember the cross and the suffering that your Savior went through so that you could be saved. That he chose suffering for you in the worst way imaginable, bearing the weight of all of our sin and all of his father's wrath on that cross so he could turn your shame and destruction into victory and redemption. And I want you to walk into that suffering willingly, trusting God more than you trust a moment that you don't understand. Trusting who he is more than how you trust, more than trusting how you feel in a moment. Because God loves you, he has granted it, granted it to you in his grace, not only for salvation, but suffering, so that you might be more like Christ, that you might grow in your joy and hope in Christ, and so that your life might be a testimony to other people who might be watching like my buddy. Church, this is the hope that we stand on. So here's what I'm going to finish with today. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice, for even in the suffering, God is with you, he is for you, and he is working all things out for his good, for your good, and his glory. Let's pray.